Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to synchronism, mysticism, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W.blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at the farmpodcast.store. That is the farmpodcast.store. All right. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. All right, guys. I've got two gifts with me tonight and one in spirit. As to those present, one is a newbie. The other is a repeater. As to the latter, he is a serial entrepreneur and data activist. He is also the co-founder of TEDx Mid-Atlantic in Washington, D.C., and has been studying disinformation campaigns for well over a decade. Most recently, he has been doing some incredible work tracing the origins of QAnon. Elsewhere, his series, The Big History Behind January 6th, available for free on Medium, is quite eye-opening, and I urge all of you guys to check it out. Folks, I give you guys David Troy. David, thank you so much for dropping by tonight, sir. Glad to be here. All righty. Also joining us tonight is Desiree Kane, a Miwok, two-spirit, and a multimedia investigative journalist and activist who has been on a bunch of front lines, including Occupy, Standing Rock, where she was embedded nearly eight, eight out of nine months in the conflict. She has traveled to cover border issues. She advocates for the rights of indigenous people and so much more. Folks, I give you guys Desiree Kane. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. Majuxis, thank you for having me. All right. Today's show is going to be a deep dive into Occupy Wall Street. Emerging in 2010, Occupy Wall Street captured the public imagination like few movements before or since. For one brief moment, it seemed that there was a real possibility that the 99% those of us not among the global billionaire class may be able to unite and forge a better world. But was there ever such a movement as that? Since the heyday of Occupy, its dark side has become more and more apparent. Some have argued that this was due to the disillusionment and anger that set in after the movement began to collapse. But what if the dark side was always baked in? That question and many more will be explored this evening. All right, so one of my guests has had uh, some experience, to put it mildly, in the Occupy movement firsthand. So to start off with, I wanted to give Desiree a chance to break down her experiences for everyone at home. So take it away, please. Okay, um, so Occupy Wall Street kicked off. My involvement was um, in Charlotte, North Carolina with Occupy Charlotte. Uh, and really it was this you know, ideally, this wonderful time of the 99% coming together, finding class solidarity, finding one another um, to really advance some of the really difficult um, situations that the public has found itself in because of class warfare and other things. Occupy ricocheted across the globe um, and even today, we have long-lasting positive effects that came out of Occupy. 
But as we look back, we retroactively need to reassess and glean the lessons learned from what worked and what didn't work from Occupy Wall Street as we approach its 10-year anniversary. We've been able to track, and uh, the other guest, Dave Troy, has done a significant amount of work to really go back and look at the networks around Occupy, um, reach out to people, including myself, who were there for these experiences, and who and to track a number of us and involve all of us to track certain uh, disinformants, different malignant operators and folks who didn't have solidarity with the population here um, in their hearts. They were actually operating from a bad place. So unfortunately, some of those folks uh, later were tracked into Standing Rock and other spaces that I was and unfortunately am in. And uh, it's worth a look going back and figuring out what have we learned? What have we learned doesn't work? And how can we better, I guess, inoculate our movements away from infiltration by crypto fascists, by cultists, by Russian disinformants, by all these different entities that would seek to manipulate the hearts and minds of the public for fascist ends. I don't say that like, oh, flippantly. I mean, like neo-Nazi and militant Christian nationalist white supremacy. So, you know, uh, just because I have been in both spaces and over a longer enough period of time, you, you really start to know who all is who and, yeah, we, we probably need to start talking about the people who were not acting in good faith and really uh, just inoculate our movements a little better, become stronger together. That's very well said. <clears throat> All right, so let's pull back a bit and delve into Occupy's origin story. Obviously, it didn't just emerge in a vacuum. So first, can you folks take us through the political and economic issues that set the stage for Occupy? Uh, Dave, do you want to start us off on that? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, the first thing you really want to look at is the financial crisis of 2008, where, you know, there was obviously a big, um, you know, systemic issue that came to the fore very quickly. And, uh, you know, there was the big uh, TARP bailout of the banks and all of that. And people felt like, you know, gosh, uh, you know, there was obviously a big systemic failure here, but nobody that was involved with the banks was really held responsible. Um, what's up with that? And so um, this guy, uh, Dave DeGraw, uh, started to really, you know, focus in on that and look at some of the other systemic issues going on with banking. He was looking also at the BCCI scandal, which, uh, you know, for those that don't know, this was the bank that was, uh, very much involved with the CIA's black ops going from, um, you know, the 1970s into the 1990s. And, you know, he really felt as though there was a systemic issue with banking that was going on and that, you know, there was the SNL crisis, which was also, uh, you know, tied in with this and that, you know, this ultimately culminated in this giant blow up in 2008. So it's not unreasonable for somebody to kind of decide that like this was an area that should be focused in on. So this guy, uh, Dave DeGraw, um, started putting together um, a, uh, a movement to, uh, you know, kind of occupy, uh, 
you know, the, the, the Wall Street area with a thing called Operation Empire State Rebellion, which came together in March of uh, 2011. And then there were other people that were protesting the New York City budget uh, as proposed by Michael Bloomberg. And so that was uh, another sort of protest encampment called Bloombergville. And um, this combined with uh, activism coming from Anonymous um, and then also ultimately Adbusters led to what we know of as Occupy Wall Street, which was the occupation of Zuccotti Park um, in you know, the Wall Street area in 2000, starting in September 17th. 2011. And, um, you know, like the, the language that this guy DeGraw was using was, you know, along the lines of amplifying the needs of the 99%. So he would say, like, it's time for 99% of Americans to mobilize and aggressively move on common sense political reforms. And that has obviously, you know, a great deal of uh, common sense kind of political appeal. Um, but, you know, what nobody really accounted for was the fact that this was attracting all kinds of people, like it was attracting people from, you know, the left, people who were sort of of a socialist mindset, it was attracting people from the right, who were of a libertarian mindset, and um, nobody really stopped to kind of ask, like, okay, well, <laughs> how is this going to balance out? You know, how do we reconcile socialist worldviews against uh, libertarian worldviews and conservative worldviews and all of this? And nobody ever really asked the question. And so it just ended up as this kind of soup of opposition, which in some ways was really kind of compelling because it was this um, alliance of the 99% against the 1%, but it never really um, nobody ever really sat down and said, you know, because it was leaderless, you know, which you can, we can, we, we can get into more about whether that was totally by design or part of kind of a feature of, of keeping this thing sort of amorphous. Um, it, it, nobody ever really sat down and talked about what any of that meant. So it was very complicated. And as these kinds of players that were plugged into this moved on over the course of the succeeding, you know, 10 years, uh, they each got into their own little universes and exploring their own, you know, special, uh, I would say, uh, views about how this stuff should be settled, and they were not at all the same. So it's created this very uh, complicated kind of morass that we now have to navigate looking back historically over these last 10 years as to what this thing actually was. Desiree, do you have anything to add? I honestly could not have said that better myself. Um, part of what happened with the uh, we are the 99% messaging was, you know, uh, well, you wind up uniting with all, all the, the 99% and within that 99%, there's always going to be some portion of people with these beliefs that are, you know, extremely hateful. And then, of course, the members of the public that get roped in and their open hearts and good intentions are manipulated and they wind up upholding things they don't actually realize. Occupy was a big concentration of a lot of concerning things, especially now what we know about Cambridge Analytica and the ways that algorithms and personally identifiable information can be weaponized against the population. 
Um, and I feel like Occupy was the first real taste that we got with the movement space as the research and development bed for a lot of these uh, technologies that have since turned into really gnarly, nasty things. All right. So, uh, all right, so let's get into a movement that uh, emerged about two years prior to Occupy, the so-called Tea Party movement. What is the relationship, or lack therefore of, between these two movements? Uh, Desiree, do you want to start us off on that one? Uh, what, what is the relationship between these two? Well, you can emphasize the lack therefore of. Um, well, it's a little bit complicated because to speak for entire movements is difficult. I don't speak for the Occupy movement. And so what, you know, what I experienced, I would say with the Tea Party and Occupy would actually be that the Tea Party and men's rights activists and a lot of bad actors actually infiltrated Occupy after finding one another amongst the Tea Party um, protests, right? So yes, we had members of the left coming to Occupy, which were, you know, well-meaning, but the Tea Party folks, they found one another, they then went to Occupy, they recruited people from Occupy, and these folks, have all blobbed together, you know, people being baited with disinformation in these spaces, like aren't prepared for, you know, military grade weaponized propaganda and disinformation campaigns. So I think probably the frame that is most helpful to look at is actually what I just said, which is the movement spaces as research and design beds to figure out you know, what works, what doesn't work. You can kind of um, test things out on people and cut and run because the movement uh, occupation might not uh, be in the physical form anymore. Uh, it's really uh, difficult to navigate that. But one other point just to bring up about the we are 99% message is that it was problematic because like, indigenous people, other marginalized communities, you can't align with people who are seeking to oppress you, right? So if you say we are the 99%, there isn't an understanding, you would think that there's a populist um, care underpinning or message about that work, but really we are the 99% meant indigenous people were partnered up with you know, like Bundy style sovereign citizens, like Ben, that's not an actual pairing. Um, so, you know, it's it sounds good, but in all actuality, it's a bit all lives matter-ish because it erases the like lived experience of communities that are marginalized. So when you talk about the Tea Party and Occupy, and people finding one another, and then Occupy being a recruitment source, uh, they all go hand in hand in hand because the movement space is where these things are being workshopped. Yeah, I just, I would like to add to that, just, you know, really to confirm kind of like what, what Des was saying, that um, 
you know, this was a very amorphous thing and it became kind of an opportunity for people to show up and try things and kind of see what stuck. And, um, you know, as far as the Tea Party was concerned, you know, they were very much interested in kind of beta testing messaging and seeing what would stick and what wouldn't. And, you know, there's an interesting article uh, that I was citing in the research for this show actually called 20 on the Right in Occupy by a guy named Spencer Sunshine, who was pretty tied up with the Occupy movement. And, um, you know, he wrote this whole article and then he kind of added this appendix to it saying the Tea Party and Occupy, the grand alliance that wasn't. And he goes on to kind of, you know, say, oh, no, 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 you know, there's no actual overlap between any of these Tea Party people and the, uh, you know, Occupy people because they're just so different in their worldview. And, you know, he's citing people like, uh, you know, Amy and Kylie Kramer um, and Mark Meckler, who went on to become uh, CEO of Parler. And this is in 2014. And, um, you know, they're talking about how much they hate the, the Occupy people. And like, from a practical network perspective, this is, these are the people that actually ended up overlapping in their worldviews. And, um, you know, so I, I kind of, I think you have to kind of go back and look at this from a historical standpoint and go, okay, how many of these people actually ended up intersecting in physical space and, you know, how, over, how overlapping were their views in fact? And I think that there was much more overlap than, than people would maybe like to admit. So, um, you know, it's not to say that you could sit down and say that they're their agendas were exactly the same, but their uh, network overlap and their, um, you know, overall effects that they were trying to achieve, I think were extremely similar. All right, so let's talk online culture for a minute. Uh, to my mind, Occupy was one of the first large scale movements to emerge in the post 4chan, post Tumblr internet culture. Uh, both of these websites played a pretty considerable role, especially uh, 4chan in crafting the alt-right, and in the case of Tumblr, uh, the much lesser extent, what we would consider the woke movement, sorry for lack of a better term, uh, but their influence was already felt at the time of Occupy. So uh, can you folks take us through Tumblr and 4chan, please? Uh, Dave, do you want to start off? Yeah, I mean, you know, this isn't an area that I spend a ton of mental energy, but, you know, like I am pretty familiar with a lot of the writing on the topic and, and know the overall time period. And I think, you know, when you look at things like Gamergate and, um, you know, just kind of the overall activity with Anonymous and their, you know, uh, actions against Scientology and all of that, it was a very heady time in terms of thinking that crowdsourced action could have a big political effect. And, you know, I think most rational people are, you know, relatively happy about the kinds of actions that Anonymous was taking against things like Scientology. Scientology is ridiculous and it's a cult and, you know, it, it's not unreasonable for folks online to organize against something like that. Then the question becomes, okay, well, you know, if folks like that are going to organize against various kinds of political movements, what should... Um, those things be and how, th how should they be organized and who should decide what's, you know, uh, gains uh, traction and that kind of thing. And, you know, in the case of Occupy, there was a moment where um, this guy DeGraw, um, you know, was organizing his own kind of thinking about this and was getting people behind it. And he had this website called ampstatus.org that, uh, you know, was talking about the 99% one time and whatnot, and it got hacked. 
And um, so he turned to Anonymous and said, hey, can you help me out? Anonymous is like, sure. They, you know, figured out how to secure his site and deter uh, attackers and whatnot. And it created this kind of alliance between Anonymous and him that was called like A99. And um, that created an opportunity for, uh, you know, them to kind of form this loose alliance around, you know, kind of building up this idea of the 99% and the idea that Wall Street was a bunch of fat cats and that they were benefiting differentially from the bailouts and all of that. So, you know, I mean, I think all of that was was kind of natural and even pretty reasonable in its formation. I think the, the issue ended up being that it attracted all of these kinds of really hardcore libertarian types that um, went on to form the seeds for both the kind of QAnon movement and all of the great reset because it attracted kind of like these Nasara types and people that were into that kind of stuff, um, as well as it planted a lot of the seeds for the Bernie movement, which, you know, was by itself, maybe not a horrible thing, but the fact that it was kind of coming out of this kind of almost bad faith milieu, uh, made it a little bit more complicated. And, um, so, you know, you, you ended up creating kind of the seeds for both, uh, Trump and for Bernie coming out of this mix almost simultaneously. And, uh, you know, I think most people don't really realize how connected both of those movements really are because one is kind of the mirror image of the other. Uh, what about the, um, the effects of the FBI raids on Anonymous? I mean, I think to some extent an argument could even be made that uh, around 2010, I mean, 4chan was maybe even maybe maybe perhaps left libertarian, so to speak. Whereas um, I know, especially with the oh, the other hacker collective that came out of anonymous lulzsec, I think is what they were called. Uh, quite a few of those members had pretty far left um, political views. Um, and they mm -hmm. were also the ones who ended up going to prison, incidentally. Uh, but it seems like that really decimated a lot of the, the liberal activists that had been active on 4chan uh, up to that point as well. Yeah, I think that's a, a perfectly, you know, valid observation. And while that's not something that I'm super personally uh, familiar with, you know, from a firsthand experience, that definitely, I think, you know, shapes how these folks kind of perceive the world and who was kind of left in the mix when this stuff was going down. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of the it kind of paved the way for a lot of the hardcore trolls to take over just in time for the uh, the Gamergate fiasco. Right. Um, Desiree, do you have anything to add? Um, I mean, I thought it was interesting, especially going back and looking at the ways that the FBI targeted Anonymous. I thought that was interesting and actually pretty sad. Uh, I found a thing where the FBI had warned the public against Anonymous, but what the FBI was actually trying to do, but just completely failed, was to warn the public that there was a, an infiltrator within Anonymous that was linked to a cult. And so it was just, uh, you know, I come from a space where the FBI often is not acting right. And... Um, they there is a lot of work done to kind of squelch the voice of quote unquote civil society or dissidents depending on how you protesters whatever and uh you know the u.s government does not tend to be really favorably looking upon 
um, groups of leftists organizing. It goes back a really long time. Uh, so I just thought it was very sad. Looking back, you can see that wreckage if you are looking for it. So when you ask about, you know, what was the impact of the FBI on Anonymous and you observe that the left, the leftists and nons pulled out, like you, it feels messed up, but we can thank the FBI for that. And that doesn't, I don't know, a little bit cognitive dissonance because you want to think that the government is going to be helpful with a helpful group of, you know, civilians working on a public health issue, but no, not, not that time. Yeah. Context matters. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, let's get into the last component of the uh, transformation going on online at the time, and that was social media. How significant was the rise of Facebook and Twitter? Uh, Dave, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, these were pretty clearly transformational technologies. Um, you know, Twitter really started taking off in like 2007 to 2009 timeframe. So by 2011, it was, um, you know, very much a factor. And so was... Uh, Facebook. And, you know, there was obviously some uh, chaos around, you know, like who was running what Facebook groups and uh, Twitter accounts and, and that sort of thing. Um, Joan Donovan, who was, uh, uh, you know, pretty actively involved in a lot of this stuff, especially with LA, but she actually took over a lot of the communications for like OccupyWallStreet.org and another uh, effort called InterOccupy.net. Uh, and she is now uh, like doing disinformation studies at the um, Harvard Kennedy School Shorenstein Center. Um, you know, she was very deeply in, in plugged into this and looking at how the, uh, you know, hashtags were working and how different Twitter accounts needed to be protected and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we've been trying to understand a little bit more about some of like the libertarian and right wing influences that have been coming out of this and we've reached out to people like Joan and she's been uh, Joan in particular has been very reluctant to talk to people about this and I'm not quite sure why she could she could just be busy or it could just be not wanting to revisit it I don't know but um, you know these uh, channels were pretty influential in terms of uh, organizing people and bringing them together for the encampments and then the subsequent operations that uh, took place uh, after the encampment started to dissolve, which ultimately kind of morphed into a lot of what became the burning campaign. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, like these are important things. And I think, you know, the thing that really hasn't been revisited and probably needs to be is like, who was attracted to this stuff and why and what were they hoping to achieve from it? You know, we know for a fact that there were a bunch of people that were engaged in various kinds of libertarian leaning activity, you know, very much opposing the Fed. So, you know, Occupy the Fed, that kind of thing. I mean, even David Duke was pulled into Occupy uh, because he found it attractive. And so there were a lot of people kind of moving in his footsteps uh, that, you know, we need to understand better. And um, yeah, so like, you know, I think part of the challenge right now is that a lot of people think of this as being a fundamentally kind of left-wing, um, you know, sort of socialist leaning 
kind of operation when in fact it attracted people from across the spectrum as anything that was sort of trying to attract the 99% would. Um, but it was by no means clear headed in terms of, of, you know, what the agenda was. And so, you know, there were uh, folks like Lisa Clapier, who was running communications at Occupy LA, who uh, went on to become deeply involved in QAnon as the character Snow White um, in, in QAnon. And she was seems to have been connected with uh, the I am, um, you know, theosophy movement and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and she was way up in this. She did a screening of the film Thrive uh, in 2011 at Occupy, which was the uh, film that was done by um, uh, Foster Gamble, uh, the heir to the Procter & Gamble fortune. And if you don't know the film, it talks all about, uh, you know, Tauruses and free energy and, you know, the evil central bankers and Bitcoin and gold and, you know, how everything's going to be great when we can free ourselves from the evil central bankers. So this is pretty boilerplate libertarian propaganda. And, um, you know, this was all stuff that was being pushed through the channels of, of Occupy in hopes of finding an audience and building up uh, critical mass to, uh, you know, drive these movements forward. So, you know, it was complicated, to say the least. And these social media channels were very much the battleground where these things were happening. Mm -hmm. I'm going to agree with that. Um, you know, Facebook is where um, some act. So back during Occupy, at least in Charlotte, and then I was plugged into just kind of the broader um, Occupy Global Network, which, you know, there are like a thousand Google groups, for example, and then your town gets each one, and then there's a regional one, etc. Um, Facebook was there, but at the time it was really, Occupy relied heavily on Twitter. And so, you know, you, you talk about like, oh, the, the chans and all, it, no. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that they have some small slice, but the large slice actually belongs to Twitter and hashtag parties and occupiers getting online, um, doing things called thunderclaps, which is where you could sign up your Twitter account to signal boost something at a certain time, like you consent to allow your handle to be used. Um, there was a lot there and a lot happened on Twitter. Um, a lot still happens on Twitter that, you know, for organizing. And when you look at January 6th, you look at the tweets and the communication between the organizers, it's all playing out on Twitter. It's all visible and you can see them again if you're looking for them. But, uh, you know, when we're talking about manipulation of the public and these big, big, big platforms, it matters when you go back and you're looking at, okay, well, who wound up with this big Twitter handle from Occupy? And at the end of it is like, you know, people who are just awful and people who are paid by press TV, like the Iranian um, propaganda outlet, there's problems, right? So fast forward, what were these accounts doing and what are they doing now? That's all happening. 
not on the chans, not anywhere. It's happening on Twitter and it happened on Twitter and Facebook. So yeah, there was some stuff going on with the chans, but um, Twitter is the one who kind of really takes the cake as the Occupy tool. I mean, uh, I would say that there's a larger um, type of disinformation network that still exists out on Facebook of a lot of, uh, you know, um, what would I call them? people's news outlets or citizen media outlets are full on anti-vax, full on QAnon, full on uh, conspiracy theorists. There has been a takeover and those takeovers have been happening since what we just discussed, which is everyone found one another in that Tea Party movement. And they came, made it hard for us to discern because of this infiltration, like who's just a jerk and who's actually an infiltrator. They brought propaganda. They brought money, you know, from oligarchs all over. And, and they used the emergent technology of Twitter and hashtags to just go ham in a bad way. Um, crypto fascists, like our sources will tell you, crypto fascists targeted Occupy accounts for takeover. Like if you look back, it's a lot of those accounts have either been rebranded, they're real weird, they've got uh, very concerning people running them still, or you might get the lone holdout who's like, you know what, I'm gonna buck everything in my social circle and speak out because I'm noticing the radicalization going on around the messaging on our platforms. And like, we need more people to be brave like that because this takeover has occurred. Like no amount of wishing it away, you know, navel gazy, feel good, by all means feel good and celebrate the successes of Occupy. But let's not also like gaslight ourselves and say that certain things didn't happen. Like we have been targeted. The public has been targeted. And Occupy is, uh, you know, Dave and, and I and some others, we kind of joke and we call it the Borg or the Blob or the Octopus. <laughs> yeah, some people call it, you know, the like, um, like the tree. There's all kinds of different ways that people describe this network thing. It's very real, you know, and, um, and so I guess to round out your, your questions, Twitter and the lack of, uh, you know, guardrails around what you can buy for ads at the time, what you could run. There was no policing. No, it was it was totally wild west on Facebook at that time for sure. Mm-hmm. And Twitter, I mean, it's just the web. Yeah, for sure. Going through that transition where traditional journalism institutions just could not handle this crush of people who, I mean, in Charlotte, the blog that I was part of writing, we were taking the Charlotte observers, like the main slice of web share because we were just outperforming them because these old institutions could figure out what was going on. As beautiful and problematic, it's a, a double-edged thing with a, with a revolution, especially around information access. Right, so how about WikiLeaks? It rose to prominence around 2010, just as Occupy, or actually probably a little before Occupy uh, was about to take off. There was a lot of sympathy for WikiLeaks among the Occupy crowd, but what was the extent of its influence? Uh, Desiree, do you want to start us off on that? 
What was the influence for WikiLeaks? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the technology that is behind WikiLeaks, Wikipedia, et cetera, was developed by a man. I think his name is Ward Cunningham, Dave. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a tie into the Occupy movement there where he and a man named Stephen Starr and then someone else that uh, was out there, I'm scared to mention them, they all worked together, infiltrated Occupy, infiltrated the media tent, and um, basically fast forward, it's called Citizen Global. Leader is the facial recognition software that the police use um, to identify people in big groups that was gifted by Citizen Global. And these three, which I think is weird, right? Because, uh, well, Steven Starr is currently doing Extinction Rebellion. And what it looks like is that there was a, you know, an intentional um, effort to get in, get seated, gather a bunch of information, and then gift it to the feds. So... They were trying to put out the product as something called Occupy Studio. Uh, Dave, did you have anything to add on WikiLeaks? Well, yeah. I mean, like in 2011, um, I had actually been at the TED conference in the UK, the TED Global conference uh, in the summer of 2010, where Julian Assange spoke. And like, you know, we probably spoke briefly and you know, I, I thought at the time, like, this is kind of problematic, but, um, you know, like, okay, you know, I guess I can see some value for what's going on here. And it's a little bit more complicated than maybe I can understand right now. And, um, you know, as time went on, I kind of came to realize that, um, especially heading into 2016, that, you know, WikiLeaks seems to have been compromised, you know, by the Russians and perhaps was a Russian oriented thing all along, but I don't know. But the main thing is, is that, um, you know, like this was clearly more complicated than just being like a guy who's a journalist, like putting out stuff, you know, and the, the factions that formed around that were very complicated and looking at, you know, people like um, uh, Cassandra Fairbanks and Luke Rudkowski and Susie Dawson and uh, Aaron Gallagher and these other people that kind of coalesced around Occupy that were very pro uh, WikiLeaks, you know, it it raised questions for me about like what exactly is going on here. And I'm not sure that all those people were like witting people, although I'm pretty sure that like Luke Rodkowski and Cassandra Fairbanks were pretty witting. I'm not that sure about the others, but point being that like, this is complicated and as we look back on like the 10 year anniversary of Occupy, you can't just go like, oh, well, it was some kind of left wing populist movement. It was this like toxic stew of all of these different kinds of players coming together for their own reasons. And like I was monitoring, you know, Occupy Baltimore, where I live and, you know, interested in what they were doing and not unsympathetic to the goals. And I was subscribed to the mailing list and stuff. I'm not going to claim that I was like, you know, an active participant. But my point is just that, you know, like this was an interesting social movement and you felt sympathetic to their goals. 
but it was so much more complicated than just being like any one uh you know kind of movement it was like whatever you wanted it to be and i think so many people that were plugged into it um were taking from it whatever they wanted to take from it and um so you have people you know like robert david Steele, who i know you know we've talked about on your show several times before in a multiple in multiple different contexts you know who was plugged into occupy Wall Street, he was going up there in November of 2011 and making videos and talking to people about open source intelligence and an opportunity. And, and so it raises questions about whether this thing was engineered or whether it was um, just taken advantage of by different people that wanted to you know, use it in an opportunistic way. And I think the answer probably is maybe you know some of all the above, but I think it's super wrong and overly simplistic to just suggest that it was some kind of, you know, plain liberal movement. I think it, there's so much else going on with it. And it really unleashed a lot of the kind of processes that led us into the Trump era and, you know, our current moment. And that's why it's important to go back and understand it properly. Um, so real quick, how about like um, the rise of Bitcoin kind of during this time? Of course, uh, it first kind of started to get uh, a certain degree of interest from the public at large uh, when Silk Road uh, took off in 2010. But then um, after PayPal had cut off, um, you know, payments to WikiLeaks, um, it started to become popular to use Bitcoin to fund WikiLeaks. And uh, later, it was also used as payment uh, for LulzSec, uh, and I think maybe some of the uh, other offshoots of Anonymous as well. Um, I find it kind of interesting that uh, in the early days, they did kind of manipulate activists to some extent to raise the profile of Bitcoin and legitimize it. Um, did you ever get that sense? Dave? Well, I can speak to it a little bit. Um, you know, I feel like that, uh, you know, Bitcoin was definitely kind of put out during this period um, and was taken advantage of by folks that, you know, were opposed to central banking and the Fed and all of that kind of thing. You know, where Bitcoin came from and who's responsible and all that, I think, is, is definitely open to a lot of uh, speculation still. But, you know, the fact that, like, people that are connected to the PayPal mafia, you know, the Elon Musk's and the Peter Thiel's and uh, Rod Martin's and all of those folks, you know, have been pushing this uh, pretty consistently gives you a sense of kind of like, you know, what their angle might've been. And then also the fact that there was kind of a occupy the fed element to um, occupy wall street. Um, I, I think gives you a hint of what, some of the motiv motivations of some of the people involved um, actually were. I mean, there's been this uh, constant undercurrent of dislike of central banking going all the way back to, you know, the 30s when Roosevelt went against the gold standard and even before that to Jekyll Island when the Fed first met in whatever it was, 1918, I think. Um, and, um, you know, like this is, there's a fundamental worldview conflict around whether or not um, central banks should be in charge of money or whether or not we should use either gold or gold proxies such as silver uh, or Bitcoin. And, um, you know, this gets down to the idea of like 
do you fundamentally feel possessive about like, you know, money being a physical object, or do you think that it should be more of a social construct that, you know, we can work on expanding collaboratively, what have you, in order to make the economy have an optimal outcome? And, um, and I believe that that's a fundamental, fundamentally irreconcilable kind of worldview difference that, um, you know, continues to be uh, litigated over the course of these many decades. And until we kind of reach some kind of consensus about that, I don't think that we're going to settle that. So we're going to periodically have, you know, big fights about that. And I actually believe that that's what's what underlies uh, the January 6th conflict um, is this idea around, you know, what is the nature of money? Um, and, you know, some might say it's white supremacy and whatever. And yeah, that's definitely an element too. But it's all this like view of like whether the world is hierarchical in nature or whether it's somehow or another collaborative and cooperative. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of what's underneath the surface there. So I, I think until we ex until we settle that question, I'm not sure we're going to really get to the point where we um, are past some of these uh, core conflicts and the weird ways that they play themselves out um, in society. Uh, Desiree, did you have anything to add on Bitcoin or any of the other cryptos? Um, pass on that one. I have a lot of feelings, but we could talk about it maybe a different time. Okay. All right. Another uh, crucial player at the onset was Kali Lawson. Sorry, I'm probably butchering. Kala, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dave, uh, can you tell us a bit about this gentleman? Yeah, so he's an Estonian guy um, who actually lived in Japan for a while. And it's a very interesting bio um, and probably don't really have time to get into like all of his different uh, pursuits and whatnot. But basically, he founded the magazine Adbusters. Um, and um, when Dave DeGraw and the Bloombergville people were, you know, figuring out, you know, what they wanted to do in terms of amplifying their call to sort of occupy these encampments and they were reaching out to anonymous and whatnot to try to figure out how to share their message they ended up connecting with this guy Kala Lassen um, who uh, you know put this very evocative ad into adbusters um, in uh, probably you know August 2011 uh, that said what is our one demand and had this you know beautiful, dancer standing balanced on the uh, head of the Wall Street charging bull. And, uh, you know, it said something like, you know, uh, Wall Street, you know, September 17, 2001, bring tent. And, um, you know, it's very evocative. It's like, okay, you know, something's going down. I don't know exactly what, but, you know, bring your tent. We'll figure it out when you get there. And um, uh, I almost feel like that that uh, question of like, what is our one demand the fact that it, it did not make a clear demand, the fact that it was almost like a sigil, you know, from a egregore kind of standpoint, you know, it just put this thing out into the world and then whoever wanted to show up and engage with that could, uh, it was a very clever framing of, of the problem. And, you know, by comparison, uh, some other activists in New York put out posters saying like, you know, Occupy Wall Street, 
you know, we, we need to engage with the problem directly, whatever. It was much less sort of imaginative. And you almost could speculate as to which one was sort of more effective from the kind of magic standpoint. But um, at any rate, both of these posters ended up being put out and it drew all these people to New York on September 17, 2011. And it kind of created this momentum at uh, Zuccotti Park. But um, interestingly, um, the Occupy event that ended up taking place in Tallinn in Estonia was distinctly right-wing. Um, Lassen himself uh, has gone on to be very like pro-Brexit and uh, generally be, I would say, on the side of folks who, uh, you know, are sort of uh, where like the Trumpy kind of crowd is now, you know, in terms of promoting um, uh, right-leaning populism uh, as opposed to kind of some kind of more left-leaning collective approach. Um, Dave DeGraw uh, is also a big anti-vaxxer and, uh, you know, has been complaining about COVID vaccines and that sort of thing. So, you know, it, it's not, you can't just say that like those folks were necessarily right-wingers all along and that they planned Occupy to be like some kind of right-wing um, activism, but they're definitely, I would say, anti-party in general. You know, they're anti-left, anti-democrat, anti-republican, and looking for some other kind of, you know, through through way, uh, whether it's libertarian or some kind of third position. I, you know, hard to say, but um, you know, it's it's definitely Lawson is um, an agitator um, at its at his core, and he was also very involved in the. Um, uh, you know, culture jamming movement and that kind of stuff. So following up on, you know, the work of um, Carrie Thornley and uh, Operation Mindfuck and Church all of that kind of stuff. Years. It's Yeah, you know, that same kind of, of through line of, of thought, which, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but in terms of what are the effects and how does it, it manifest itself on society, I think, you know, you have to kind of weigh it that way too. And you know, not all of this has been totally positive either. So it's he, he's he's a very complicated character. Desiree, did you have uh, anything to add about Mr. Lawson? I don't, uh, but I would just say, you know, the the history of how Occupy started has always been it's a point of contention, right? Because it's a movement, so there's a bunch of places where one could pin their starting point. This is a very strong one. Um, but one of the things that's worth talking about is this practice of ghost organizing, where organizers working at publications were publishing as journalists, but were in fact organizing. Um, so that's something to consider when you're looking at, well, what are the origins of Occupy? Who are these people? What's Adbusters? Like, what's the deal? Is like, some of the organizers are working at publications and leverage their platforms to give rise to movement um, visibility, which, you know, for better or worse, it, it was a very real thing that happened. So, yeah, just take that into consideration that that's out there. 
All right, now we've been kind of alluding to some different factions at play uh, within the Occupy movement. Uh, Dave has diagnosed uh, at least three distinct groups active in it. Uh, so first off, uh, we're gonna go over the progressive left. Uh, Desiree, do you wanna handle this? Sure, the, the progressive left, like who was it Occupy from the progressive left? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, the progressive left is usually um, folks that are working in movements um, for labor justice, for um, bodily sovereignty and sexual assault and domestic violence uh, justice. We've got folks who are working at the time racial justice was not as uh, of what would I call it? was always the focus for people of color, but for the white movement space, it was not oriented around racial justice. We owe Black Lives Matter the, you know, thank you for bringing some of those things into the front and center. But, um, you know, there were also the, um, the anarchists who go around and you see anarchists pop up in the news every so often patching up potholes and doing mutual aid, especially during the pandemic, this anarchist rise of like this age old practice of mutual aid came about. So that uh, group was present. Uh, also from the progressive left were folks who were like, I'm just trying to think of who was in the circle, you know, environmentalists pissed off at the big banks who were bankrolling coal ash and all this like dirty energy. Um, there were folks who were houseless and had lost their homes and knew that they could come for mutual aid into these camps and receive community care and service in a time where I'm certain because of that 2008 housing crisis, people were in need of great care. Uh, there were also <laughs> the ever-present rogue children of the 1% who would turn up they want to do something because they see what's going on with their parents or with some hypocrisy in their environment and they decide to take action from the progressive left were always the ever-present um voices of the people that are in you know public service so you know all kinds of politicians at the time from the left came out were supportive at Charlotte we had Charlotte City Council people all those kinds of folks because the occupation was actually uh, like on the Capitol lawn and so um the beautiful side of Occupy folks also you know was there the the like beautiful tapestry of folks who are like yes I'm gonna show up because I noticed there's injustice here I'm gonna show up because I watched my friend's mom, you know, go into being essentially destitute because of this healthcare situation and big pharma and these big banks are partnered up and we have to break this because people are dying. There were a lot, a lot, a lot of people that turned up with good faith that needed populist mutual aid amongst a lot of people and, um, so that's who was there. I mean, you'll get a ragtag group of folks who will say, oh, I was there when it started. Like, good for you. Uh, that's cool. But if it's truly an amorphous um, deal, it's a leaderless movement, 
centering yourself is a red flag in the first place that I don't know, maybe, you know, someone was there not for whatever reasons and they're trying to make a name like I'm talking about it now because it's pertinent. But when you get these folks who are like, I will shroud my entire identity and being from Occupy and then they sell ebooks and crap that like and what they did was just attend they weren't even like organizers it's this weird grift those folks were there and those folks are always part of the left um and right it's just grifters people whatever they're kind of apolitical and very political in the same right um but from the progressive left everybody turned out um, the progressive left is what made Occupy beautiful. Um, it was this uh, kind nature to want to help other people that was then just in a disgusting manner completely exploited. Like myself having put in labor and time, I look back and I'm like, oh, man, we put all that time, we really believed in a thing. and here are all these bizarre, um, you know, militant, Christian, nationalist, cultist, crypto, fascist, libertarian, whatever. Uh, it doesn't feel great. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of complicated emotions. So I'm glad to kind of pass it off to Dave to talk about who was also there because I get a little bit riled up thinking about all of the effort, all of those resources, all of that time, everything put into something in good faith, only to then look back and we're like, oh crap, we got played. And not only that, it's ruthless uh, level that we're starting to understand what happened in Occupy. I mean, we nobody was prepared. And like, sometimes I see the public regard Dave like as this kind of, esoteric like oh you can't glean stuff from network analysis kind of guy but like you can having been there having watched how people operate knowing the groups around my community i'm still in the a member of the progressive left like watching our loving gestures squandered is enough it should inflame the occupied bases once they start we all start putting two and two together and like listening to dudes like Dave, because I have been back on the front lines. Like I left Occupy, I stayed in the movement. I stayed in the movement space, but like brains like Dave were out there combing through the metadata of our images and stuff and identifying like who's all who probably sounds a little bit creepy, but in hindsight, being able to look back and be like, we have to stop whatever got us January 6th aggressively because we are spiraling into like some pretty severe neo-nazi fascist like rise so it's helpful to look back and be like what who who was in the progressive left that was there who was there that was not part of the progressive left and actually just move the regular folks who were there in good faith off the field and focus in on the people and where their money came from that are paying to destabilize our democracy today in ways that are really compromising the ways that we can relate to one another and are breaking out in violence. You know, so it's about who was there, but it's very much about who was there and which camp did they fall into. 
like th those nuances matter. You can't just say, oh, Occupy was this beautiful thing. Just like any movement, any diaspora, any big group of people, a smattering of things happened. And the progressive left was there, showed up in good faith and full force. But then, you know, here we are talking about who wasn't there in good faith, who was also there in full force, because those folks have since gone on to really harm the public psyche and indeed like our physicality with COVID denialism and more. So I'll, I'll pass it over to Dave with that. Well, that was really well put. I mean, I think, you know, um, so many people that were there were acting in good faith. And certainly, you know, one of the things that I remember from monitoring Occupy Baltimore was that it was essentially good faith actors. You know, these were progressive activists that either I had known previously or, you know, was vaguely aware of or was prepared to believe, you know, were acting in good faith. Uh, you, you know, were trying to organize, um, you know, reasonable progressive change in the city. And, and there, there's absolutely no problem with that. Like, you know, that's totally fine. I think, um, you know, kind of what became more problematic was the folks who were trying to organize, uh, you know, what really amounted to more libertarian kind of, you know, hardline, more right-wing kind of things under the banner of uh, this Occupy movement, which, you know, to be fair, um, under its definition, which was very loose to say the least, you know, there was ample opportunity for people to uh, carry these kinds of banners. So, you know, in the case of Occupy LA, you know, we talked about Lisa Clapier, you know, and organizing screenings of Thrive, you know, we're aware of Robert David Steele being active in New York and Thomas Schoenberger visited New York. I don't know exactly what he was doing there, but besides that, you know, there were various folks connected to Ron Paul uh, activating around, you know, ideas like end the Fed. There were Alex Jones uh, folks talking about Occupy the Fed. Um, there were Oath Keepers there uh, with Occupy the Occupation, um, you know, and this, this is starting to sound a lot like uh, January 6th in a lot of ways. You had David Icke, uh, Luke Rudkowski with We Are Change, which was a, you know, 9-11 truther group <laughs> that was ended up being very closely connected with Cassandra Fairbanks. Um, and then, you know, a long list of other folks that were, you know, involved in various ways in the American right. Uh, whether you're talking about like Tom Metzger with Air, White Aryan Resistance or with David Duke and the KKK. So, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, there were a lot of different factions of people that were attracted to this thing for one reason or another. And um, all of which I think they sort of saw it as kind of a plastic moment where there were these uh, people that were showing up. They weren't entirely sure why. They maybe. Um, you know, had different ideas that they were concerned about. And it was an opportunity really to give all of them a kind of sales pitch around, uh, you know, what kind of activism they might uh, become drawn to. So, you know, some of these people might have felt, oh, well, I actually am a uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Fed, you know, kind of activist, even though I thought I was kind of a left winger. Um, in fact, those are my hot button issues. And so it was a recruiting opportunity for a lot of different kinds of movements. And, um, you know, like the thing that drew me to this, just to, you know, kind of tie it back to why I care about this, is that, you know, in researching a lot of these disinformation efforts 
and you know operations like you know what Cassandra Fairbanks has been doing, and then ultimately, uh, you know January sixth and um, QAnon and things like that, is that there were so many ties back to uh, Occupy that it was impossible to ignore. So then when you see all these different efforts that are tied into Occupy in one way or another, you start to go, oh, what's the common DNA here? How did this come to be? And why are these people uh, you know, somehow or another linked to Occupy? And you start to realize that, oh, you know, not everybody that was there was sort of on the same page. And so, you know, that was one of the reasons we we got a little bit motivated to act about this right now was that, you know, there's going to be a 10 10 year anniversary of Occupy in September, and there's going to be people writing think pieces about it and, you know, what changes occurred. And, you know, anybody that writes a think piece about this stuff and misses this very complicated um, kind of DNA and and the uh, genealogy of the fact that these move, this movement led to you know, complicated things in the Bernie movement led to complicated things in the Trump movement, led to the January 6th, led to QAnon, is missing the whole story. And, you know, anybody that's willfully ignoring that, I just, I can't even have any sympathy for them. Like, you know, either you're on the side of like sorting out American history and like trying to understand it, or you're, you know, kind of on the wrong side of things from my perspective. So that's why I'm a little bit baffled at people like Joan Donovan and Aaron Gallagher, who were just like, oh, you know, don't ask questions about this. Joan Donovan actually testified before Congress um, just two months ago, or it was in April, um, three months ago. So uh, she said something like, you know, when all of these disinformation campaigns started in 2016, you know, we were all really surprised and that, you know, this stuff hadn't been happening, you know, back in the Occupy days. And I'm like, are you kidding? You know, so many of these things got their start at Occupy. You can't separate the two. You have to grapple with that and and talk about these things as a whole. So, you know, I don't have any animus against Joan Donovan, but I desperately want her to engage on like what the real history is here because I don't, it doesn't compute to me. And as a, as a historian and as a, an analyst, I, I can't, reconcile these things. So either I'm missing something or there's a failure to engage here. And um, I desperately think that the American public deserves to understand the nature of this and how it's evolved. And, you know, we, we can do better than just writing uh, hagiographic think pieces that praise these movements. We need to understand them in some fine grain detail. Very well said, Dave. All right. Um, Well, that brings up the third potential faction at play, uh, Russian intelligence. So um, Desiree, do you want to start us off with that? Sure. Um, Geez, such a broad, (laughs) broad thing to just launch right into. Uh, I don't think the activists have been fully aware or willing to confront the fact that uh, operatives have been poaching people, organizers and, and blackpilling them, redpilling them uh, for, for quite some time. And when you back up a little bit, and in the case of Standing Rock, I mean, we can talk about it, but this is, uh, I'll tie it back in. Billionaires tend to play games and they all have different mercenary forces 
because of the lack of nation state allegiance of cultists, oftentimes uh, nation states, both domestic and abroad, um, will use operatives to, to play these games uh, with cultists. So when we're looking at uh, Russian infiltration specifically, um, I tend to focus in on the work of um, the folks who put out that Thrive, that film Thrive, because they were, yeah, Foster Gamble, uh, how it rolled, was rolled out in the Occupy space very specifically. What are the contents of this film? Like what has happened? Because the the cults are very much being weaponized by nation states because of their dogmatic beliefs one way or the other. With Indian country, we see it. With Occupy, we saw it. It happens. And so when you're like, okay, what happened in 2011, 2012 with Russian intelligence? Occupy was infiltrated. That's what happened. There are these all these different tailings of different ops. They've got a crew of operatives identified. They all are in their respective places today. Some of them still out there being terrible people. Uh, and there's still some of them in formation. So when you watch these folks, they all will move um, in an interdependent manner based on what the um, op du jour kind of is. So, you know, you got to go back and look at the cultists and the role of the New Agers. I'm sure that the listeners of this podcast are very much up to speed on the ways that New Age spirituality has become conspirituality. And so that's the intersection worth looking at when you're talking about Occupy and Russian infiltration and cults. There's a pinpoint, a sharp one right there where the cults were almost without certain mobilize, organize, doing much. Um, so it's hard to tell who's Russian, who's Chinese, uh, who is American, which agency are they under employ with, and which oligarchs' broad interests are they likely to be serving? Peter Thiel? He, you know, he's got Tiger Swan as his kind of bootleg offshoot of Blackwater. Uh, he plays by Kelsey Warren, the oil tycoon. He's his henchman. You know, he, there's a whole bunch of them. They operate in the interest and they'll fight amongst one another. So when there's a, you know, quote unquote, problem with the plebeians or whatever, the little people, the oligarchs are in a band together and send in all their operatives to get people back in control. Sounds a little bit like, you know, there's a difference between conspiracy and conspiracy theory. Like conspiracies were played out, operations were played out. And so you can talk about Russian infiltration, but why stop there? We can talk about corporate infiltration. We can talk about a spiritual, you know, infiltration. It's on and on and on, especially in the movement space. So well, short, on that note, like, look at the cultists. 
Well, let's get into a topic we had uh, discussed and signal a little earlier, spiritual um, colonialism, essentially. Uh, mm-hmm. Something about uh, Foster Gamble that's really interesting that's not widely known was his um, long-term relationship with Arthur M. Young, uh, the founder of the Institute for the Study of Consciousness. Um, Young was a major figure uh, in New Age circles uh, for many years, uh, even though he's not really widely known. Uh, but he did do a phenomenal job of uh, promoting one of the great UFO slash spiritual mythos of the uh, 20th century, and that would be the Saga of the Nine. Uh, he was actually one of the Chandlers in 1953 with Indrina Puharic. Uh, and since then, I, a lot of this stuff has been incorporated into uh, popular culture, uh, specifically through Star Trek. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, of course, was uh, really taken in with the whole saga of the Nine at some point in the 70s and potentially even earlier. So Gamble was in these circles. And then on top of that, uh, Young was also a major patron of the uh, fundamental uh, fundamental physics group to Jack Sarfati and uh, a lot of these type of people who uh, frankly really rebranded physics at a time when it uh, desperately needed it. Uh, in the early 70s, it was very closely associated with the military industrial complex. Uh, physics buildings were actually being bombed on uh, campuses. And then it was rebranded as this way to achieve inner enlightenment by merging it with uh, Eastern metaphysics and so forth, which is um, problematic, I would say, on a lot of levels. Mm -hmm. So Gamble was a part of this whole milieu that's just really promoted these bogus ideologies for years. Uh, And then you have this guy showing up in Occupy. I mean, it seems like that this was really a golden opportunity to radicalize a lot of people in the new age on the one hand, but I mean, also continue to just push these absurd narratives that, you know, especially really uh, demean indigenous cultures and many other non-Western religions in general. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. All that. Okay. Okay. Spiritual appropriation is something that has been going on forever and ever. Um, Some of my relatives were back on the Alcatraz occupation during the late 1960s and early 70s um, during the American Indian Movement. And um, within my community, we all kind of joke and call them born-again natives or born-again Indians, but they are mostly... uh, um settler heritage but not exclusively people who have truly truly embodied every aspect of colonialism to the point that they need to now occupy indigenous spiritualities and uh cherry pick the things that serve them because that's what we do in america and they've really gone into overdrive because the vulnerability of indigenous people and indigenous lands to have such a noxious force of people with actually a lot of power and influence and communication skills, platforms, fake media environments, the whole nine front groups. Uh, There's a land grab happening in slow-mo that does involve spiritual appropriators being pretty much at the center of that because they basically salivate with indigenous land and indigenous movement spaces and spiritual spaces because they're some of the last bastions of uncolonized space. And like they cannot help themselves, they must possess it. So all the way down to the spiritual level, these like jerks come in. They're like Christian nationalists high on ayahuasca and like, you know, fake news. And it's not cute. 
it's been going on for a long time. It's like, that's the history of this continent is this outside force coming in. They're Christian nationalists. They've got to convert the savages and take all of the land. Like that's American as apple pie. I hate to say that. There's beautiful parts of Americanism too. But what these particular folks have uh, have done is to take it beyond a, a genuine interest and seeking um, to understand empathetically and honestly. And they've taken the, the beautiful portions and completely bastardized them. Now they've made fake prophecies. They've got whole entire, like the rainbow family festivals are just rife with all of this stuff. And native people don't understand that they're correlating things like spiritual debasement with melanin. So like these groups, you know, they're there to occupy your identity and suddenly also shame you for the melanin that comes with these beliefs for a lot of people. So like the darker you are, like that's your karma basically is what you're saying. And if you're born light skin, you know, quote unquote, Eastern European beauty standards or whatever, you've got your like, or not your Eastern European, but your European beauty standards. Like, I just, I don't know. There's, there's a lot to it, but I think you really just, they, they've taken it and they've, they've, I don't even know if we can call some of them indigenous spiritualities anymore. It's plastic shamanism, it's spiritual hucksterism. The hippies love this. They love to think that they like stand with indigenous people when really they just are like racist and like they must possess anything native that that's what's going on. Uh, it's even going on with Robert David Steele in the Black Hills, like in back in July. Just you know, they these folks they attach onto native lands, native people, native spirituality is like our bodies, every single thing is up for consumption. It's really disgusting. You'd be like, dude, stop, just stop. But because white supremacy because of the power because like Dave mentioned a lot of these like kind of groups have been going since the 30s and arguably before they're moneyed it can't be stopped unless we have this like you know public uh I don't know what initiative to address like colonialism because if we're going to be dismantling QAnon if we're going to be dismantling what happened like as a society so we don't wind up with what a lot of us are are kind of not wanting to look at but like there's conflict everywhere um you know we should probably be looking at some of those things yeah just to add to that briefly um i spoke with um jonathan weiner the other day who was uh, one of the lead counsels on the Iran-Contra uh, trials and hearings and whatnot back in the late, early 90s with John Kerry and whatnot. And he described um, kind of a, a concept of a rolling craps game where um, anywhere in the world where sovereignty is sort of close to the surface, uh, there are folks who are, you know, anxious to get into that because, you know, they can take advantage of it and uh, try to obtain, you know, sovereign citizens status and avoid, you know, taxation. So they can do stuff like avoid regulation and avoid, you know, strong, uh, you know, taxation and those sorts of things. And so I think, you know, we found that that's true in places like 
Panama, Nicaragua, and uh, various um, uh, you know Caribbean islands over the course of the last 150 years, that kind of thing. Things like Operation Red Dog, you know, where they were trying to take over, uh, you know, uh, islands in the Caribbean. I was just um, about to ask you when the uh, long dreamt of libertarian island utopia would finally be upon us. I mean, I, we can all hope, you know, it keeps getting pushed back is the problem. <laughs> you know, we can, when it happens, we'll all go there for our great casino vacation and, and you know, have our libertarian coke fueled uh, binge. But um, yeah, you know, it just keeps not happening. And um, these folks are constantly sort of seeking out, you know, wherever that sort of crust of like regulation is thinnest and so maybe one day it's cyprus or panama or nicaragua you know or sometimes it's indian country and so folks are going after these native lands and these native communities as a way to kind of puncture this veil into you know getting into sovereignty and you know i don't think that it's like a coincidence that um, a lot of these uh, pipelines and things like that flow over those kinds of territories because if they can uh, manage to um, deal with the regulatory aspects in those geographies, you know, at lower cost or whatever, that's just like a permanent baked in profit that will result from uh, negotiating that. So there's every incentive in the world to, uh, you know, kind of descend on those uh, geographies. And, um, you know, we've identified kind of an, a concept of like the bear hug, which is used in business where like, you know, you basically get offered uh, you know, like a share price that you can't turn down because like it's fiscally irresponsible for you to do so. And these same kinds of tactics seem to appear in these uh, native lands where, um, you know, there's sort of people on both sides that kind of appear out of nowhere that also are like, you know, tend to move in, in lockstep with each other. They kind of keep showing up in different contexts and, um, uh, you know, they, uh, sort of overwhelm the situation so that uh, the folks that are seeking to overwhelm this sovereignty situation with capital are able to do so and to do so with relative impunity. And nobody really asks questions because it's kind of like, well, you know, the, the debate that gets played out is between left and right. And, you know, the left and right is like supplied by the um, the people with capital, <laughs> you know, so it's like whatever happens, they win because capital always wins, you know, if that makes sense. And, um, and that's kind of the pattern that we're starting to see emerge out of some of this. And it's incredibly cynical and it's incredibly destructive. And there's a lot of real victims uh, that come out of this, you know, because people that are actually bad people end up getting uh, funding because, you know, somebody's trying to be, you know, bleeding heart and fund the left or whatever. And it turns out that's going to people that are maybe just as bad as the people on the right in some cases. So it's, it's an incredibly difficult situation to parse because most people are not studying this in anywhere near the level of detail required to really understand what's happening. So it's just, it's a huge mess. And I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Desiree. I think I probably butchered and oversimplified that a little bit, but I'm, I'm trying to give people an idea of just like how, pernicious and complicated some of this stuff is. Yeah, I think you actually did a good job. I would actually offer a everyday example of exactly what you're saying. So I talk with people, friends, just community members, a couple of them are public information officers for their tribe, for the sovereign nation of their tribe. 
And um, they've been facing what I can only account as an onslaught of requests from people who one don't understand native communities so they're like hi yes i'd like to talk to your chief and council about moving to this obscure bitcoin that like is super sketchy <laughs> and um it's weird because what they want is to put a data center on sovereign land which is completely outside the jurisdictional reach not physical reach, but, you know, quote, on paper, jurisdiction of the federal government completely. So because tribes are sovereign nations and tribal land is sovereign land of a different sovereign nation, federal jurisdiction around tribes is different than anywhere else in the United States. And most Americans don't realize there are many sovereign nations with sovereign land within the, quote, unquote, United States, but it's actually occupied territories of these tribes. Um, you know, that's they they want access to the sovereign territory because they can hide in it and then there aren't resources because it's already an abandoned prisoner of war camp. That's what those reservations are. They're in terms of resources. So once they get cemented into something like I really worry about whichever tribe they're able to manipulate first around getting some kind of data center Bitcoin thing going. Mm -hmm. But like it's going to be completely um, a situation where whomever has created the coin is putting the native tribe in conflict with the United States government and the federal systems, which this day and age and looking at the history, how do you think this is going to play out? Like who's going to actually be harmed in this? It's the native tribe. This is the right. native people. So they want access to the lands because they can hide their bad behavior on it jurisdictionally and the feds can't come. I mean, they can come and they should and they will, but they think that they won't. Well, and this reminds me also of the, you know, the old Danny Casolero, Michael Riconoscuto guy, you know, who was talking yeah, about the development of the uh, rail guns and all of this, you know, crazy weapon systems in the Cabazon Indian lands uh, in, you know, the early 80s late seventies, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, same kind of thing, different day. I mean, the reason that they were doing those weapon developments there was because, uh, you know, they didn't have the same kind of regulatory oversight that they would have on us lands. And even though there were, you know, a very tiny number of Cabazon tribe members, it was, you know, 38 or something like that. Uh, you know, they were still able to, to pursue this. And I think that, people have been pursuing those same uh, arrangements since, you know, since then or before uh, for the same kinds of reasons that, you know, it's out of the, the reach of the U S tribal government. And some people are, you know, they have practical reasons for pursuing that. Some people have ideological and, you know, even compulsive reasons for pursuing that. And um, you know, as long as that persists, I think we're going to see uh, native uh, tribes and, um, you know, terrains become under this kind of scrutiny uh, by folks that are seeking that kind of, of sovereignty and people need to become perhaps more savvy about um, why people are seeking out those kinds of arrangements and, you know, what kind of results might come from that. Now, one of the things that kind of occurs to me, especially, you know, recalling that Wacken Hunt was a part of this, you know, weapon development right. you were talking about, Dave. Um, so, 
what happens if one of these cryptocurrency outfits sets up shop on a um, Native American reservation and um, hires a Blackwater type uh, paramilitary company to um, do security work in there? Um, it just seems like that this would potentially create uh, an epic conflict, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, Desiree, uh, do you have thoughts on that? Sovereignty by the barrel is one of the most offensive concepts I have ever come across. Some of those tribes that believe in sovereignty by the barrel are entitled to that belief and already do do that, I would guess, because they're on the side of the oil and the money. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that sounds like a very plausible, uh, you know, kind of arrangement that you're talking about there. I mean, you know, uh, setting up this kind of uh, deal on a native lands, you know, potentially using, you know, water power derived from native lands to mine Bitcoin and using like Tiger Swan to, you know, defend it or something. I mean, that just, that sounds completely believable. <laughs> you know, like, why isn't that like in a, in a you know, uh, thriller novel right now? Like that seems completely uh, something that we might see. Yeah, I mean, there's even maybe shades of uh, executive outcome in their uh, work, quote unquote, in Africa during the 90s, uh, which was largely uh, done to procure lands for um, oil companies uh, that uh, incidentally, the owners of executive outcome also owned. So um, it does raise some very, uh, very uh, negative possibilities in the future. All right, so one of the individuals who has been in the news quite a bit lately, uh, who has ties to the Occupy movement is quote unquote citizen journalist, Tim Pool. Uh, so uh, Dave, do you wanna get into uh, what he's been up to of late? Yeah, so there was a really uh, extensive article that was just published uh, in the Daily Beast by uh, Robert Silverman uh, talking about Tim and uh, it's like, you know, why is coward and whatever, you know, Tim Pool, you know, et cetera. So you can find this article pretty easily in Daily Beast, but, um, you know, very critical of, of Tim. And basically Tim, uh, you know, sort of made a name for himself coming out of Occupy LA. Um, was, you know, sort of reporting on the scene there, mostly putting reports out via Ustream. Um, and, uh, you know, he went on to get involved with Vice News. Um, and the, the article really talks about how uh, you know, he has no skills, basically, <laughs> and how each, you know, subsequent place that he was employed was very disillusioned with, uh, you know, his, his actual contribution to the outfit. And, um, uh, you know, that's their words, not mine. But, you know, point being that, um, you know, he uh, sort of made an aim for himself just sort of for quote unquote reporting just by sort of being there. But it was always about him and you know his relationship with the situation as opposed to really talking to anybody you know the article talks about how he went to ferguson and really declined to engage with you know any uh, african americans that might have been affected by the situation and you know he was kind of more inclined to check his phone and hang out in his hotel room and these sorts of things so um more recently he started a company called scanner uh i believe in late 2020 early 2021 um, and hired some folks to work with them. Uh, there was a whole situation involving him, um, like kidnapping a cat that belonged to this former employees of his employee of his named uh, Emily Molly, and then there's this guy Rocco 
Castoro that was working with Emily and they split off and they've been having this big feud since then. And it's been kind of a lot to follow. I don't claim to know all the details of that, but um, basically the gist of it is that Tim seems to be making a significant amount of money, um, you know, on the order of a few hundred thousand dollars a month from his uh, mostly YouTube uh, monetization of his videos. He's just hired Cassandra Fairbanks uh, to be one of those editors with Scanner in the last uh, month or so. Um, and, uh, you know, these folks were definitely launched by Occupy and are, uh, you know, doing pretty well, even despite all of the criticism that they've received. Um, they have an audience and are, uh, you know, raking in at least a decent amount of money. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of questions as to kind of like what his overall deal is and, you know, um, whether he's connected with Russian intelligence or something like that. Um, I, my personal opinion is that he's probably, um, you know, a combination of a lot of different things and, um, you know, seems to be, uh, you know, taking in a lot of money um, in the process of, you know, trying to sort of build this brand for himself. But, uh, you know, certainly this Daily Beast article was extremely critical of him. And, and there's really no disputing the fact that he got his uh, start, uh, you know, in the Occupy milieu and, um, you know, through Ustream and whatnot. So I don't know if, Des, you have more to add to that, but that's my, you know, top level impressions. Yeah. Tim gained his fame because he was the last live streamer standing able to film the raid of Occupy Wall Street. That's his deal. So when you say like he was doing you streaming, kind of the last holdout in any media space slash movement space, there's a certain level of like, um, I don't want to call it fame, maybe I'll call it social cred that comes with it. So everybody that I know refers to Tim Pool like he's known as like an alt-right person, but for whatever reason, the public and press calls him the dirtbag left like we don't claim him he is (laughs) not part of the left just because he came out of occupy and was live streaming does not make that dirtbag part of the left he's not part of the dirtbag left he's not part of the left he's just a dirtbag yeah for sure and i think you know there's definitely you know kind of the um chapo trap house kind of crowd and even the QAnon anonymous and all that kind of thing that people have kind of characterized as the dirtbag left, but I would say that Tim is, um, you know, definitely a, a, a sort of uh, band beyond that. And also he seems to have been pretty tied in with like the MAGA 3X um, uh, crowd that, um, you know, was, was connected with amplifying a lot of, uh, you know, messaging and whatnot. So there's, there's some question as to whether Tim's, uh, audience is entirely organic or whether it's amplified by like various kinds of bot mechanisms that were connected with MAGA 3X. And I'm not sure anybody has a great answer to that, but, um, but yeah, that's definitely something that people have talked about. All right. Well, as we go into the home stretch here and wrap up, uh, do you folks have uh, any final assessments for the legacy of uh, Occupy in 2021? Uh, Desiree, do you want to start us off? The legacy of Occupy in 2021. You keep asking these very broad questions that I'm just like, holy, where do I even start? Um, I think that there is a pragmatic 
legacy of Occupy that is worth knowing. Um, and I really hope that as the, uh, the anniversary, I guess you would call it, approaches of when Occupy kicked off all those years ago, that we'll see a pragmatic approach from the left to actually look at lessons learned um, in a healthy manner that doesn't shut down or devolve. Because when someone approaches the topic, like myself, I have tried over many years in a number of instances to call out some pretty serious situations. Um, the left will tend to snitch jacket people and say, don't you talk about this? They're part of the left. And actually the people I and others, Dave, a bunch of people have been calling out or turning out to not be part of the left. So my hope is that we've learned enough since that time to one, to selfishly don't shoot the messenger, but to really be able to look at the behaviors of people in a longitudinal way and ascertain like, which side are they on? There's this movement song, which side are you on? We do need to look back and understand what happened because we cannot afford Occupy to happen again. And we can't be encouraging young people to take action and be civically engaged as long as we're not doing the due diligence to understand in order to protect young people away from weaponized disinformationist propaganda as radicalization, how to stay clear or even identify radicalization pipelines when you're being sucked into one. Because there's a bunch of young activists right now, they're in pipeline fights, they're doing mutual aid, they are maybe organizing for housing justice, for economic justice, and every single day they're interacting with either known agents or manipulated agents of these known agents. And they're playing a broad role in something that they don't understand. And I can't tell because I was arrogant as a younger person too. I can't tell if it's youthful arrogance, not wanting to listen or what, but the habit of being like, oh, anyone who talks about this is, they're a fed. Like I'm certain after this interview, I'm gonna be called a fed or a snitch or whatever. But the fact is gonna remain that alt-right white supremacists, Christian nationalist cultists, we've got Russian, Chinese, Iranian disinformationists, all of these people were part of the quote unquote 99%. And so whether we like that or not, let's learn and not do that again. So some of the bad actors that have been named on this show are active in the movement space still in the left and need to be extremely examined, especially around pipeline fights, because people who are feeding public information and helping occupiers upload stuff into the clouds that wound up in the hands of the police are out fighting line three. And they want you to rise with line three. So like the legacy needs to be that civil society activists who believe in the true power of nonviolence and engaging in society in a way that is constructive and is gonna advance us all, like come out the other side just stronger, that the movement isn't gonna be afraid to talk about all of this stuff and won't just shut down. I hope the legacy is that people come away and they're like, Occupy wasn't a waste. 
because we have to learn these lessons, otherwise it will be. So that that's my little piece. Um, I think that was really well said, Des. Um, you know, I think that um, it's important not to sort of, um, I don't know, become uh, despondent or, you know, lose hope over the fact that, you know, not everything that went down in the past has been an unalloyed, unalloyed success. You know, there has been some, some successes and some failures, and some of that has just come from people being naive and, and accepting things at face value. And, you know, that's human nature, like that's fine. It is, it's how things go, but, you know, it's also true that we can learn and that we can evolve our uh, assessment of things and that we can, you know, become better at, uh, you know, kind of managing some of this stuff. And I think, you know, there was a real naivety amongst people on the left uh, in particular, but I think even on the right as well of that, you know, anybody that shows up is somehow or another an alloy or an ally. And, um, you know, that's often true, but it's often not true. And especially in this, uh, you know, moment when it's just so easy to, um, you know, uh, dissemble and to be something you're not online and to uh, try to, you know, somehow another sabotage efforts. And there's people that, you know, are actively looking to infiltrate and sabotage things. I mean, we know, you know, from things like Project Veritas and whatnot, that there's a real effort to kind of not only infiltrate, but to capture information and to frame it in a certain way and all that kind of thing um, in order to score political points that everybody just plain has to be on guard. And that doesn't mean becoming paranoid, but it just means becoming smarter about looking at people's network affiliations, about looking at their histories, about looking at, you know, their social media output and what kind of, you know, organizations they're involved with to the point where, you know, we really actually understand, you know, what people are, what kinds of roles people can be trusted to be in, uh, in activist situations. And, you know, I think the most important thing that we could do right now is to look back on this Occupy legacy with, uh, you know, a great deal of um, care and to really understand exactly what went down and to do so in a way that isn't trying to cast blame or to, you know, somehow or another say that, you know, people were naive or stupid or evil or whatever, but just really understand it and, um, you know, try to make it so that going forward, uh, there's less of a chance that that kind of thing could be gamed by people that don't have, um, <coughs> sorry, the movement's best interest to heart. Oh, that was uh, well said by both of you. And, uh, if uh, nobody has uh, anything else to add, I suppose we will uh, wrap up on that note. <clears throat> well, as always, I thank you guys for listening. I hope you uh, folks out there enjoyed the show as much as I did. This has been a great conversation. And on that note, good night and good luck to you. <laughs>